Well, good evening. You got my guitar? Okay, good deal. Good evening. We're glad you're here with us this evening at Broadway. I'm going to invite you to stand as we sing together. We're going to start at hymn 499, Victory in Jesus. Then we'll flip back a few pages to 449, Because He Lives. Let's sing together this evening. I heard an old, old story How my Savior came from glory How He gave His life on Calvary To save a wretch like me I heard about His groaning Of His precious blood's atoning Then I repented of my sins And won the victory Oh, victory in Jesus My Savior forever He sought me and bought me with his redeeming blood he loved me ere i knew him and all my love is to him he plunged me to victory beneath the cleansing flood i heard about his healing of his cleansing power revealing how he made the lame to walk again and cause the blind to see and then i cried dear jesus come and save my broken spirit and somehow jesus came and brought to me the victory oh victory in jesus my savior forever sought me and bought me with his redeeming blood he loved me ere i knew him and all my love is to him he plunged me to victory beneath the cleansing flood i heard about a mansion he has built for me I heard about the streets of gold beyond the crystal sea, about the angels singing and the old redemption story, and some sweet day I'll sing up there a song of victory, oh victory in Jesus my Savior forever. He sought me and bought me with his redeeming blood. He loved me ere I knew him, and all my love is to him. He plunged me to victory beneath the cleansing flood. God his son they called him jesus he came to love heal and forgive he lived and died to buy my pardon and empty graves there too 
my Savior lives, because he lives, I can face tomorrow, because he lives, all fear is gone, because I know. And life is worth the living just because he lives. How sweet to hold a newborn baby and feel the pride and joy he gives. But greater still, the calm assured this child can face uncertain days because he lives because he lives i can face tomorrow because he lives all fear is gone because i know Because he lives, and then one day I'll cross that river, I'll find life's fine or with pain, and then as death gives way to victory, I'll see the
my heart, Lord, take and seal it, seal it for thy courts above. Here's my heart, Lord, take and seal it, seal it for thy courts Rob, we have a video. My name is Husuo Daniel Tarnagda, and uh, I'm from West Africa. The ministry that we work with is called Refuge Bowling Green. So I was living and working overseas when I met Daniel, and when we moved to America, we came straight to Bowling Green. I got a job here locally. And when Daniel came, he came up with the idea of starting a soccer program where he could connect with other African young men and then also be able to impact and connect with their families. Here at Refuge, our main goal it is in three different areas, occupation, recreation, and education. All those three main parts it is to help the refugees to be self-sufficient and to make sure that they know Christ at the same time. A refugee is a person who had no choice about fleeing their country. Um, they, in general, most of the refugees that we work with spent about 20 years in a refugee camp before being resettled by the UN. Um, and they have no say in which country they go to. Um, and so much of the decisions in their lives are not their decisions. Someone else is making those decisions for them. One story come to, to mind, it is a young man uh, named Kashindi. Uh, Kashindi lost mom and dad and brother and sister. And only him and his little brother survived. They spent more than 20 years in a camp with a foster parent. So when they arrived here, Kashini had so many problems, stomach. So he was throwing up a lot, stomach pain, and he could not even go to school or go to work. And when he went to see the doctor, and it was very bad inside. And one night he called us say, I can't bear this pain no more. I think I, I need to take my life. And we told him, we are going to be your family. And we spent time with him through prayer, through fasting. Kashini had a job, and now he doesn't have Medicaid no more. He's self-sufficient. He bought his first car. And Kashini got baptized. We celebrated his baptized uh, a couple months ago. And his brother, brother is on the same path of wanting to be baptized. They want a country to belong to. They haven't had that. They don't have that. We are so thankful for the Eliza Bronis offering this total transformation and impact in the lives of, of immigrants and refugees would not be possible without the Eliza Bronis offering. When you think of Bowling Green, do you think of refugees? 
That there is for the Eliza Brodus State Mission Offering. What this is, is our church collects four offerings a year. Our first one, going through the calendar year, is what we call the Annie Armstrong Easter Offering. Our all-time record for that is, and we said it two years ago, it's like $11,400. The second offering we collect is the Julia Woodward Associational Offering, and that's around Mother's Day. That is for our local association. We give 1% of our, every time you put a dollar on offering plate, we give 1% to our local association here. The, the Julia Woodward offering is on top of that for some special projects they do. And this past year, we set a record for that. I believe we collected $1,400. That's a world record for our church. The second, third offering we collect is during the month of September. It's called the Eliza Brodus State Missions Offering, and it goes to the KBC. Now, we give 10% to our cooperative program, but they have a special offering once a year to help fund some things, such as refugees in Bowling Green and ministering to them that maybe aren't included in their regular budget. And our, in 2007, we raised $2,079. So far, if you look in the back of your bulletin, we've raised $420 towards that. So that goes uh, towards um, reaching um, uh, just folks here in Kentucky. Now, our largest offering we collect is Christmas time. It's called the Lottie Moon Christmas Offering. And in 2012, we collected over $46,000. Now, half of that was matched by the church. So our church has raised actually $23,500 for that offering. I believe it was in 2012 when we did that. So uh, that's a, uh, always our largest offering, and that will be coming up at Christmas time. These are offerings that you give to that are basically above and beyond your tithe, and it goes to like the IMB, the Lottie Moon offering does, which supports missionaries. Now, a lot of their money comes from cooperative program, but it doesn't fund everything, so you're able to give a Lottie Moon offering that helps give even more to help support worldwide missions. So we're in the midst of collecting the Eliza Brodus State Mission Offering. And you should, in your, in your offering envelopes, you will have, if you get those mailed to you, which hopefully you do, you will have special envelopes for all four of those offerings. So I want to help educate folks on those. It's very important, uh, uh, sharing the importance of, of what our KBC, our Kentucky Baptist Convention, is certainly doing. Open your Bibles to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 4. Now remember, on Sunday nights, I'm preaching through the book of Acts. You say, well, preacher, what about last Sunday? You were in Revelation. Yes, I was in Revelation last Sunday night because we, I wanted to get through chapter 1 of Revelation to get ready for our Wednesday night study of Revelation chapter 2. So Revelation is Wednesday night. We're in chapter 2. Sunday night is the book of Acts. Studying the Bible verse by verse is important, and I want to tell you why it's important. That's what we call expository preaching or expository teaching. It's important because you can't gloss over the verses you don't want to hear about. Because a lot of times what happens with Bible teachers or preachers, they have like three or four subjects they love, and they tend to go to those over and over and over again. Well, when you're going through a book of the Bible, you're forced to study that. That's the strength of going through the scriptures. So we are studying, tonight's actually a great passage, you're going to love it. Acts chapter 4, we are studying here, we're going to look at three sections. Now hopefully, 
you received a bulletin, you want to pull it out. Or if you did not get a bulletin, you want to go back there to our fine ushers, and they'll be handing them to you. And you can follow along here or bring it for the uh, one you had this morning because there's a one fill, there's two fill in the blanks here. There's three sections we're going to see here tonight. And it's important for you because we need to see characteristics of the early church that we as believers should also display. We want to have the same type of passion as these folks did. Now, it has been a month since we were in Book of Acts because we've had a million other things going on on Sunday nights that have certainly interfered with our Acts study. So I want to bring you up to date of where we're at. What happened here is Pentecost occurred, Holy Spirit came down, uh, people started speaking in different languages, 3,000 folks got saved, the church is starting to grow, Peter and John start proclaiming the gospel, in the streets of Jerusalem, well, the Sanhedrin, the Jewish religious leaders, they're not happy with that because it's taking away from their influence. It's like a new church has come in town and a new, a new, this new belief here, so the Jewish leaders aren't, aren't pleased at all. So they arrest Peter and John, and then um, uh, they, they examine them, and they realize, you know what, um, They've got a big following, and a lot of folks like them, so we're just going to threaten them instead of beating them. We're just going to threaten them not to speak in the name of Jesus anymore and um, just send them along the way. Just, they got the verbal threat. Well, uh, there was also a healing of a, a man who was lame. That was healed. That, that didn't please the Jewish leaders at all. Peter spoke to the man, and he was able to walk again. Well, and the guy was 40 years old. Well, what happened was... We get to the point here in Acts chapter 4, verse 23, that Peter and John have been released and threatened not to speak in Jesus. If you Jesus' name, if you remember what they say, say, you know, we can't help but speak in Jesus' name. I'm not going to listen to your threats. Telling me I can't talk about Jesus is uh, not going to be uh, very productive. I'm not going to listen to you on that. Might listen to other things, but not about that. So now look at this boldness here. This is a true prayer meeting, what we're about to see. Have you ever been in a powerful prayer meeting? Have you ever prayed all night? Have you ever been somewhere and you literally can say, not, you know, we have prayer meeting on Wednesday night. Brother Hurd leads that. Um, and with Bible study, that last prayer meeting Bible study, that's about an hour or so. Maybe it goes over five minutes after an hour and five minutes, but for the most part. But I'm talking about extensive prayer, and you felt the presence of God. So that's what we're about to see right here. Acts chapter 4, verse 23. It says here in your Bibles, After they were released, you know, it's from the Sanhedrin, they went to their own people, the fellow, fellow Christians, and reported everything the chief priests and the elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices together to God and said, Now this is a prayer to God. Master, you are the one who made the heaven, the earth, the sea, and everything in them. You said through the Holy Spirit, by the mouth of our father David, your servant, why do the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot futile things? The kings of the earth take their stand, 
and the rulers assembled together against the Lord and against His Messiah. That's a quote from Psalm 2, verses 1 through 2. So they're, quote, they're realizing that the rulers of the world, it was actually ordained by the Lord that Jesus and His followers would be rejected, the Messiah. Right there, a thousand years early in the book of Psalms. Verse 27, For in fact, in this city... Both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, assembled together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed to do whatever your hand and your will have predestined to take place. And now, Lord, consider their threats. That's what they are, their threats. And grant that your servants may speak your word with all boldness. That's their prayer. Broadway, they're praying that they're praying to be bold. They've had cold water poured on them, and they've been told to hush their mouths. We live in a culture just like this, where folks are saying, you want to be religious, you stay on your 3.3-acre campus right here at Harrisburg Road and Pasadena Road, New Circle Road, and you do whatever you want on your little campus, but it's not going off the campus. That's the attitude of a lot of folks. And these guys here, this church, they're meeting together, and they're saying, give us boldness. Notice what they did not do. Nowadays, this is our typical response. If you feel like you've been wrongly accused, you've been hurt, you've been a victim... The first thing you do, maybe not you, hopefully you, is you go and call an attorney. You get a phone number off a billboard and say, I need to talk to somebody and we're going to take some legal action. I'm going to seek revenge. I'm going to trash them on social media. I'm going to fight back against this. Notice that there's none, none of that's in there. These folks... They've been arrested. Of course, it's wrong. they've been wrongly arrested. They've been threatened. They've been told to be quiet. We don't want to hear from you anymore. And they come to their fellow believers and say, God, give us boldness. Help continue to make me a bold witness. They considered it a joy that the fact that they have, are receiving this persecution. It's an honor of what's happening in their lives. This is a different mindset for us. Going around, playing the victim card, that doesn't win people to the Lord. We have to recognize that our country, at one point, yes, it might have been a devout, religious, God-fearing country. There was great revivals. But we now live in 2019. Things are different. Not necessarily they're good, but they're just different. And a lot of folks, they don't, they, we're closer today in 2019 to the Bible than maybe a hundred years ago. So follow what I just said. We're living today in 2019 closer to year 33, what we're talking about, than in 1919. Do y'all see? It's like we've made a giant circle and we're back to living in a lost culture where there's lostness, not just lostness, anti-Christian sediment 
all around. And our response should be the same as Peter and John. And they go to the Lord and say, Lord, we're not, I'm not backing down. Consider their threats. Make me a bold witness. Now look what happens. Wow, ver- I'm in verse 30. While you stretch out your hand for healing and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. They asked, they said, this is a prayer, says God, this is a prayer meeting with these folks. Make your name glorified. Do signs and wonders. Heal folks. Glorify your name. Cause a great revival to occur so that folks see your power and your authority. That's the prayer they're asking here. And look how God answers this prayer. This is a prayer. If you're praying to make Jesus' name known, if you're praying to see the gospel advance, this is what happens. Verse 31. Let's look at it. When they had prayed, the place they were assembled was shaken. It was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began began to speak the word of God boldly. I want to go through this verse. These folks are just like us. They've received some persecution. They've been told to hush their mouths. Don't talk about Jesus anymore. Just do that in your little home group or whatever. And they pray the Lord. And an earthquake, it starts shaking. And the place was shaken. What a prayer meeting. What a time of closeness. So could you imagine that occurring? And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Meaning, these folks, they experienced a revival. They walked out of that prayer meeting different than when they came in. And what happened? And they began to speak the word of God boldly. God answered the prayer for boldness. Jesus wants his name known. God the Father in heaven wants his son Jesus' name known. And when we go to the Lord and say, Lord, Make me a bold witness for you. I want to be someone that when I go out, I'm constantly somehow looking for opportunities to share the gospel. Sherry loves Starbucks coffee. It's the most overpriced, expensive coffee in the world. I go there frequently. And Starbucks, probably for companies, leans slightly to the left. I would guess that's just their company culture and some of the things they do. I'm an old school gospel track guy. In all our cars, including my back pocket, I have them. I mean, yes, they, they might work. You, you never know. Leaving gospel tracks with someone, you have no clue of the person that you're communicating to. You have no clue. I've just learned... When you are sowing the seed, some of it goes into the ground and grows up. 
And so, a lot of times it just falls on past, and birds, Jesus explained, birds just take away. They throw it, you know, I'm sure 90% of those gospel tracts, they go straight in the trash. But there's probably one out of ten that someone is standing around bored, and they're saying, I think I'll read this. And they're reading about Jesus. You never know. Well, at Starbucks, if you pass out gospel tracts, typical response, it might not be 9 out of 10, probably like 9.5 out of 10 go into the garbage there, and they kind of snicker, but they're polite to you <coughs> with that. But this past week, I was there, and the lady received it, the first time ever at Starbucks. She was receptive. She said, this is exact quote, oh, I need this. Thank you. And that's all she said. And I drove off. I need this. Thank you. When we are bold, even amidst people that we believe that would have no interest, no interest. Now, she could have been polite. I have no idea. The point is our lives. We are called by the Lord to be a bold witness that we are going around speaking the word of God boldly. Every opportunity. Now, sometimes when you're dealing with folks in a drive-thru or you only have a few seconds, you're not going to have time to have a gospel conversation. But you can leave. Guys, I have tracks in my office if you want to borrow some. I'll give them to you. You give them away. Joey has Gideon Bibles. They give them away. You see someone, there's a need, you pass it along to them. The Word of God does not return boldly. And what, what's powerful about this? These folks in this prayer meeting, what did they do? Look what they spoke. They spoke the Word of God. They didn't talk about Kentucky sports. They didn't talk about how much the culture is going down the toilet. They didn't talk about I'm going to hire an attorney and sue them and get some money. They talked about, hey, God, give me this boldness so I can be a witness for you. Part of growing in your Christian life is every opportunity, Broadway Baptist, you're somehow trying, how can I take an everyday conversation, an everyday work relationship, and somehow turn it to Jesus. It's possible. That's what these guys are doing here. They're just, they're not running around with billboard shirts on. They're just talking about how they love the Lord. And that's what it means to be bold. And look what happens here. These folks, they were filled with the Holy Spirit. You want to be filled with the Holy Spirit? And this verse says... We need to be praying for boldness. You know, the uh, question is, what are you praying for? When you pray in your prayer life, do you pray for boldness? I think a lot of us, we're praying for an American dream ideology. God, help me with my bills. Give me this. Give me this group of friends. Help bless me in this area. Heal all these people here. When these folks, the healing they were saying is, Lord, use healing. What I think is powerful about this. You know, we talk about healings. You know, our prayer meetings on Wednesday night and in our men's prayer breakfast, probably nine out of ten of the prayer requests, Brother Heard. What are they for? They're for sick folks. People who need healing. But look at the difference, the healing they talk about. Look here in your Bible. Verse 30. While you stretch out your hand for healing, the purpose of healing might not be for that person to get healed. It likely is so that that person sees Jesus. God healed and answered that prayer so that person can see the power of God in their life. That is why God, remember, what does God want? God wants folks to come to know Him, to be saved, to be a witness. 
That's what, that, that's what we see here. These men here are praying for boldness. This means they don't need to back down. There is a gospel advance. All right, now, next section here, verse 32. Now look at the unity we're about to see here in this, in this section. These folks here have a unity that many, many churches today certainly lack. Do you know what unites churches? It's Jesus, it's the gospel, it's the word of God. When another church is successful in advancing the mission, in advancing and seeing folks saved, <coughs> we should rejoice in that. Our enemies, not other churches and other believers. Our, our, when you drive down the road and you pass another church, Stop and pray, or no, stop, keep driving and pray for that church. Pray for their pastor and their deacons and the men and the women and their ministers there that they're advancing the gospel. Pray that God sets their church on fire. Look what happens here. Look at the unity we see. Verse 32. Now, the entire group of those who believed were of one heart and mind. That's almost non-existent today. Lot, with politics, with our culture, all everything is is divisive. In fact, creating divisiveness, almost, that, that's what sells. And here the gospel is saying, the group here, they were of one mind, of one heart. And no one claimed that any of his possessions was his own. But instead, they held everything in common. With great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was on all of them. For there was not a needy person among them, because all of those who owned lands or houses sold them. You know how I preached this morning on the, on the three baskets? This would be basket two, the capital basket. Because they didn't have loose cash there, so they're thinking, we've got this property, we've got this land, we're going to sell this capital for the purpose of the church and to help. So that's what's going on. This is the capital basket being sold. So, verse 35, and it says, they brought the proceeds of all the sold. Verse 35, and laid them at the apostles' feet. I want to stop there. Do you know what that means, to lay them at the apostles' feet? You know, Brother Hurd's been in the ministry for 60-plus years. I'm sure many times he has, um, somebody's wanted to make a donation or give something, and there were strings attached. They wanted this done. And they wanted credit for it. And they wanted to go specifically to designate it for that. Do you know what it means to lay at the apostles' feet? That means you give with open hands, and then you take your hands off and go say, I trust you that you're going to do the right thing with how this money needs to be spent. There is no designated money going on right here. This here was where we sold some property, we sold some lands, we sold some houses, we sold this capital, basket number two. 
We laid it at the apostles' feet, and we were giving it to God. That that should be the primary method of our giving. Should be the most important way. We give it to the Lord, and we trust the Lord that He's going to do what's best with it. When we feel like we have to put strings, when we feel like we have to have some control over it and turn it, what we're saying is, I don't fully trust you. I don't quite believe you're going to do what's right. I have this agenda that I want to accomplish here. But they're here. They're laying it at the apostles' feet. This was then distributed to each person as any had need. Verse 36, Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus by birth, and one of the apostles called Barnabas. So Barnabas' original name was Joseph. Now look at this. We're introduced to this gentleman here, Barnabas, which is translated son of encouragement. We're going to talk about that, what that means. Look what Barnabas does. He sold a field he owned. This is his basket number two, his capital. Brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So he felt inspired. I support the mission of the church. Ministry costs money. It, it, things, things cost stuff. So I feel, God, you've given me this land, this property. I'm going to sell it, and I'm going to give the proceeds to the church. I'm going to lay it at the apostles' feet. So the way they did offering, an interesting way. I don't think I've ever seen this. I guess the apostles stood out front, and they said, all right, everybody just come down, lay it at the feet. Bring what you have, and you put it right here. As they didn't pass a plate. You had to go to them. And you laid it at the I guess that way you knew if folks gave or not because they're coming forward. You're literally, you're literally watching them give right there. There's no, <coughs> no secretness about that. But we see here this unity. These folks have a, have, a, have a unity. They have one accord. They have one heart and one mind. So what, one of the things we see here, if you have your uh, bulletin insert, the early church possessed something that many of us today 2019, we just don't possess. So what is it? It's one purpose. I have it up here on the screen. There's one purpose here that they they have. It's your first fill in the blank. What's the purpose? The purpose is to advance the gospel. Our purpose is to see folks saved. Our purpose is taking uh, taking what God has given resourced us with and, and seeing lives changed with it. That's what we do. And secondly one need they want to they want to be a part of meeting this one greater need uh i don't think i see them but uh the the lamb family um some of y'all might know them and i had a meeting with them and this is really exciting story just shows about going back to the purpose and the need well, they have a daughter, and they joined at the 1109 service this morning, second service. Well, I met with them Wednesday night after our Revelation Bible study. And you know, brought them to our church. Where's Chris at? They have a daughter who's going to UK. And they want to make sure their daughter's in church. And that's, that's great. So they're saying they want their daughter to be a part of a church with a college ministry. They want her here. They want her connected. They know, hey, you're going off to college. All sorts of things happen in college years. But you need to be rooted in a gospel church that has an active and strong collegiate ministry. Sherry and I were blessed in our college years to have that. We're blessed to have Chris here. So when we give, 
when we support our church, we're supporting a collegiate ministry. That folks come off to college here, UK, yet they can find a church home and say, this is where I'm going to be rooted and anchored in the gospel while I'm here in Lexington. That is important to parents. If I had 18, 19, 20-year-olds, I'd be looking for a church that has a college ministry. You want your kids, hey, you need to be there. I'm going to call the pastor. I'm going to go join the church and make sure you come. You know, we're going to make sure this is your church. We're not going to drift off because it's easy. Our culture lures and pulls people away. And Jesus is saying here, you have this one purpose, this one need. And that, that was the one heart, one mind. If you aren't connected in a local church, if you aren't actively attending and serving, you will not have any unity among other, among other believers. Unity, you don't get that from YouTube. You don't get that from the internet. These folks were in person. They were regularly meeting together. They were getting to know one another. They were serving together. They were worshiping together. And God blessed them. The place was shaken. He was doing great things. All right, let's pull out this Barnabas. It says here, son of encouragement. In verse, well, verse 36. It's, it refers to him to this. And what does that mean, a son of encouragement? If you have your Bible, flip over to the book or still in chapter, or still the book of Acts, look at chapter 11. Barnabas is mentioned here. A son of encouragement, what that mean, means in a chapter, or verse 36 here, is that meant he served. Barnabas was one of these guys that was always active. He was willing to do anything at his church. And we see this. Look what happened here. Look at Acts 11, verse 27. It says here, and Barnabas, every time he's always mentioned in the scriptures, it's talking about how he was a good man, he was full of the Holy Spirit, he had faith. So he, he's really spoken highly of in scripture because he, he was an encouragement and he served. Verse 27, look here in your Bible, Acts eleven twenty-seven. It says, in those days, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them named Agabus. So what that meant is they were in Jerusalem, and they went up to Antioch. That's north. If you remember, Jerusalem is an elevated city. So anywhere you go in Jerusalem, you're going down. Even though they're going north, they're going down. They're talking about elevation. So they went down to Antioch. One of them named Agabus stood up and predicted by the Spirit that there would be a severe famine throughout the Roman world. This took place during the reign of Claudius. So understand, we're, we're here in Antioch. And someone named Agabus stands up and says, You know what? God has told me that there is going to be a famine back in Judea, where, are, where the Jerusalem church is. Now, let's put this in context. What if we're at church this coming Wednesday night, and we're there to study Revelation 2? Let's see here. Brother Hurd's from um, Arkansas. It starts with the M. Mal, Malbert, Malvern, Arkansas. I've never been there. 
a man that we don't know really well comes in, and he's filled with the Holy Spirit on this coming Wednesday night. And he shares with our class, guys, I need y'all to know this. The Holy Spirit has told me there is a big flood and famine coming to Malvern, Arkansas. We need to collect an offering tonight. And we're going to send Brother Hurd back to Malvern with this offering to help the people in need. Now, most of us would think this guy just wants some money. How does he know there's going to be a flood? I haven't seen this on the news. God didn't tell me anything about Malvern, Arkansas. You see how we would just sit there and question this? But the, the Holy Spirit is speaking through this man named Agabus. And he's boldly proclaiming, says, Hey, we, God has said there's going to be this famine down in Judea. So look what they do. In verse 29, each of the disciples, according to his ability, means this is what we would call a love offering. This is something in addition. This is the Eliza Broda State Mission Offering. This is sin relief when a disaster has occurred. And we see there's this extra need over here. Each of the disciples, according to his own ability, determined to send relief to the brothers and sisters who lived in Judea. They did this, and look at this, sending it to the elders by means of Barnabas and Saul. Saul hasn't been renamed yet, Paul, that's who that is. Barnabas was trusted enough that he was the one that was going to take this relief offering to the, from the church in Antioch back to the church in Jerusalem and say, hey, I'm here to give this offering because the Lord has spoken about this great need. This is what we see as a mission offering that was collected for this special need. So when we as a church collect the Eliza Brodus state mission offering or the Lottie Moon Christmas offering, those type of offerings are right here out of the Bible, out of Acts chapter 11. The regular giving we see would have been from the three baskets, like we were, really the first basket as well as here in Back in Acts chapter 4, the second basket as well from this, this morning about selling property and giving. But this was something special. We lay it at the apostles' feet, and they, we trust them to distribute it as needed. And here Barnabas is introduced as a trustworthy person, a son of encouragement, who's now helping with the collection and the fundraising. Barnabas, the powerful thing about him, is what's so positive about him here. He was known as a guy after the first missionary journey. We won't turn there. Later on, Acts will see it. The Bible said that Paul and Barnabas had a sharp dispute because they had this guy named John Mark, who also wrote the Gospel of Mark, just by Mark. And they brought him along, but halfway, he quit. He just threw in the towel and said, this is too hard. It's like, you're going, it's like a Sunday school teacher or somebody signs up to do something in church and then halfway they're just like, ah, I don't want to go anymore. I quit. And Barnabas was, came along and said, let's give him a second chance. He was always that second chance guy. Well, Paul was not that way. He was like, you want to be a quitter? There's the door. See you in heaven. That's the type of guy Paul was. He, just, he didn't tolerate nonsense like that. Well, Barnabas was the encourager. He said, you know, he just had a bad day. Let's just 
extend an olive branch to give them one more chance. Well, they disagreed so much after the first missionary journey, because Barnabas was there, they split up and went different ways. Barnabas took John Mark, and Paul took Silas. But what's, what's interesting about this, the man that's known as an encourager is also the one that said, is described in a Bible that had the sharpest dispute because he was so compassionate and always willing to give a second chance. Keep going here in your Bible. Now we see this great unity here among the church. Now the thing what we know about the Bible is, and we know also how the devil attacks, whenever there's unity, whenever things are going really well, whenever the ball is rolling, problems are around the corner. And here they come. <coughs> Last section here. Acts chapter 5, verse 1. I'll read it here on the board. But a man named Ananias and his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. Remember, what we're doing is we're selling our property and we're laying it at the apostles' feet. However, he kept back part of the proceeds with his wife's knowledge. So what this is like is Sherry and I, we go and sell our house, and let's say we sell it for $100,000. That was the actual real sale price. And say you didn't have a newspaper or Zillow that you could look it up back then. Well, you didn't really know. So I come to church, and I say, Sherry, we don't, we don't need to give all $100,000. What are they going to do with all that money anyway? Let's give them eighty, and keep twenty. But we'll tell them we sold it for eighty thousand dollars. So I, Sherry and I come to church, and I bring my eighty thousand dollars. I lay it at the apostles' feet. However, he kept back part of the proceeds with his wife's knowledge and brought a portion of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. So he, Ananias and Sapphira had their own cut. <laughs> you know. Ananias, Peter asked. The man hadn't even said a word yet. Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the proceeds of the land? Do you know what Ananias is doing? He's, a, he's committing the sin of lying. He's committing the sin of hypocrisy. And not only that, he's actually lying to the Holy Spirit because he's presenting himself as an honest man, just like Barnabas, here's my $80,000 property I just hold, sold for you only. Knowing in the back, his back pocket, $20,000 sitting there. And right away, God has spoken to Peter and say, this man's lying. There's something wrong with this. And I want to tell you why he was doing that. He was doing it because he saw Barnabas how Barnabas received this praise and this encouragement for selling his land. So usually when someone gets a favorable, uh, when something good, good goes for them, here comes Ananias and Sapphira. Think, well, I'm going to jump on that bandwagon. Wasn't it yours while you possessed it? Meaning you didn't have to do this. No one was forcing you to sell this land. And after it was sold, wasn't it your disposal? Meaning... Not only did you not have to sell land, you didn't have to give to you. This is up to you. Nobody's making you give us money. The problem was, why is it that you planned this thing in your heart? You have not lied to people, but to God. Lying to God. Lying to God 
is when you give an appearance of something among the people, but God knows the real motives. Not too long ago, I was telling somebody that um, they know somebody, whenever a church does a construction project, they go, this guy owns a construction company, they go and join the church with the purpose of hoping, hoping to build and do the, get that job because churches will typically fall for, oh, a brother so-so, he owns a business, he'll give us a great deal, let's hire him, he's on third pew. I mean, that, that, that is, like, they didn't join the church because the Lord's leading them there. And the Holy Spirit is speaking to them. They're joining. The, they're part of this. Oh, there's there's that ulterior motive. They're they're using religion, using the Lord, using the Bible, of secretly trying to maneuver to get something else or some type of image they want. And that's what's going on here. And Peter calls it out because the church was unified at this point. And here we have liars sleeping, slipping in Ananias and Sapphira. They were right there with other believers. They saw it all. But they did not have clean hearts. They had planned evil in their heart. All right, next verse. When he heard these words, now you talk about, you talk about people straightening up. This is all it takes. When he heard these words, Ananias dropped dead. The poor guy didn't get to respond. He didn't get to defend it. Guys, this is what judgment's going to be like. We are a judgment. We don't talk back to God when you're standing before the throne. When you're when you're passed away and you're you're ready to get either condemned or be saved into heaven. When you're giving an account of your life, God already knows what's going to happen. He knows everything. He knows if you've lied to the Holy Spirit. There's no response by us. There's no argument. There's no case we're going to make. Ananias died. And great fear came on all who heard. I think this is real interesting. This reminds us of, I guess, how, I guess how people died back then. The young men got up as if the undertakers are just sitting around waiting for folks to drop dead. Jumped out of the pew. Wrapped his body as if in their back pocket they're carrying cloth to bury people carried them out they wrapped them up and buried them that's an express funeral right there fear has seized the church keep going look what happens now that's ananias that's the husband about three hours later that was a quick burial his wife came in not knowing what's happened they didn't have social media or texting so nobody really knows what's going there's not a newspaper so she shows up, and she hasn't heard word yet. Tell me, Peter asked her. He's setting her up. Did you sell the land for this price? The reason why Peter knew the price, Peter says, you sell it for $80,000? Yes, she said, for that price. She had agreed with her husband, didn't realize her husband was already gone. Then Peter said to her, why did you agree to test the Spirit of the Lord? Sapphira, who are you fooling, he's saying. Look, the feet of those, meaning these young men, the undertakers, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door. I mean, they're already walking in. And they will carry you out. Instantly, look what happens to her. She doesn't say a word. She drops dead at his feet. You know, the, these apostles' feet, Brother Heard, they were either going to get some money or some dead bodies. 
I mean, you come to church, you're either going to give all or you're, gonna, you're getting carried out. That's how it went. If these apostles' feet, there was some action happening. So right here, Peter's standing here proclaiming this. Now this woman's dead. When the young men came in, they found her dead, carried her out, and buried her next to her husband. And last verse we see here says, look at what happened. Then great fear came on the whole church and on all who heard of these things. God used, a, allowed a revival to occur. He took something, the Lord allowed, these two people who had planned evil, who had planned on lying and creating hypocrisy, presenting themselves as they were not. And then they die, both of them die, and folks start getting saved. A revival breaks out. Bearing false testimony, lying, it breaks the ninth commandment. It, lying also, it breaks unity. That was what God was protecting. There was a unity of one heart and one mind. And you can't have believers going around lying to one another. All that does is break the fellowship. This is why for believers, our trust, our word, committing sins such as lying is so important. When we lie, do you know what happens? We are actually uniting with the devil. I put it right here. <clears throat> John 8.44. We won't turn there, I'll tell you what it says. John 8.44 says, When Jesus was talking to the Pharisees and the religious leaders, they claimed that their father was Abraham. And that's who they served. And they told Jesus, as you serve, you, you, sir, they, they were trying to tell Jesus that he was filled with a demon. Jesus replied, you don't serve the father of Abraham. You serve, you act, your father is actually the father of lies. The father of lies who is the devil. Jesus described the devil as the father of lies. When you and I lie, you go home tonight and you tell a lie, even a white lie. Even when... Uh, even when you feel it's not a big deal, you are agreeing and uniting and shaking hands with Satan. Because that's what he does. His native tongue is lies. All he does is mix up the truth. In the Garden of Eden, he looked straight at, as a serpent, he looks straight at Eve and says, you will not die. That is a direct lie. She did die. We as believers, God has called us that our words need to be truthful. If you can't say the truth, just don't say anything. Just say no comment. I'm not going to say anything. I'm not going to talk about this. Because I might say something that's wrong. Christ here in this passage, in Acts chapter 5, He's giving us this. Because he's reminding us that the sins of money, falsehood, and hypocrisy all led to the death, the sudden and immediate death of Ananias and Sapphira. All these things, money, falsehood, hypocrisy, Ananias and Sapphira, they fell for it. So what do we see in this passage? Christ is telling us tonight, he wants us to make sure that we are bold, that we are united 
And not only that, there are consequences for sin. Do you know, I bet if you were a member of that church with Peter and John, and you saw Ananias and Sapphira, they fought, fell down, they came to church and they never left. They died. The undertakers went and buried them. I bet the next Sunday, people came in and they thought, we sure, we're going to make sure that what we say around here is true. There's no falsehood. They paid attention to what was going on. Christ did not want to allow sin to come into the fellowship and destroy their unity. Do you know, whenever great things happen, right around the corner, the devil is going to raise up an Ananias and Sapphira, a husband and wife possibly, and to break that unity. Christ calls us that we need to make sure that everything we do in church says, is, are things I'm doing, things I'm saying, are they actually hurting the purpose and the unity and the mission of church? Is it hurting it or am I helping it? When I talk to people in this church, are my words hurting or helping? Just think about that. We're about to have our invitation. The next time you open your mouth, what I just said, is it hurting or helping? If it's hurting, you're right there in the camp with Ananias and Sapphira. They're just lying. That's all they're doing. They're lying to the Holy Spirit. You're hurting God. If it's helping, you're building up the unity of the church. I'm going to close this in prayer. We're going to have an invitation, and you can respond to the gospel. God, I pray that you will help us realize that every time we open our mouths, we are actually hurting or helping you. Lord, if we speak the truth, if we use words of encouragement like Barnabas did, if we use our words to advance the kingdom and share the gospel, Lord, help us do that. Warn us that our words can also destroy. They, they hurt the mission. Lord, our words can set people back spiritually. God, I pray this invitation. If there's anybody here that needs to respond to the gospel, I pray they have the boldness and courage to make it public tonight. We give you this message. Seal these words as always, as the Bible says. Seal them on our hearts so that we do not forget them. Make us recall it throughout this week, the importance of being truthful and not being dishonest and lying with our words. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Chris is going to lead us in our song. Let's stand together. We close every service with an invitation. I'll be standing down front. You can respond to Jesus.